The church cannot live in a bubble. As hard as some people in the church and as hard as some churches might try to separate themselves out and to live in a bubble where culture doesn't impact or influence them at all, it just is impossible. We live in a culture. We live in the American culture. And that culture is trying to influence the church. So not only is it impossible as a church to live in a bubble, I don't think we're actually called to live in a bubble. We are called ambassadors. An ambassador, by definition, has to leave the country of origin, and go to a foreign nation to be an ambassador. And what is their job? Their job is to go to this foreign nation and make that other nation, their home nation, the best-looking nation possible, right? That's what we're called. So we're called not to be separatists, but to go out and rub shoulders with non-believers, not so that they can influence us, but that we can shine God's great light to the world. We live in a dark world, and we're called to be lights, to bring God's light to that world, not to separate it out and put it underneath the bush, or separate it out and hide it underneath the bed. No, we, are, we can't, it's actually impossible for the church to live in a bubble, but beyond that, we're not called to live in a bubble, we're called to break through the bubble and be influencers or ambassadors for Christ. And yet, there are many churches that take this command to be an ambassador and they actually let the culture begin to influence and the culture begin to shape the church. And oftentimes the excuse that I hear is that the church wants to be relevant. And so, in order to be relevant, what we do is we begin to look more and more like the world so that we can bring the gospel to the world. And what this does is it actually cheapens the gospel. So there are churches out there that want to look like the world looks. Now, we, we can't live in a bubble, but that doesn't mean that we are supposed to look like the world. There is a tension that we have to live in that we are called to rub shoulders with the world, to be ambassadors to the world, and not let the world influence us to a point where we compromise. There are too many churches that have decided that they are going to look like the world to bring the gospel to the world, but in the end, they cheapen the gospel. So there's a tension that we need to live in. And this tension isn't unique to our culture. It's not unique to our church. The church at Pergamum, also experienced this tension. And that's what we're going to say today as we turn towards Revelation 2. So we're studying this. We've been going through Revelation. We've, we've been studying Hopeful. And we titled it Hopeful because Christians should be full of hope. And John is writing to an audience that is suffering under persecution, and he's writing to remind them that they are full of hope. That they have hope. That in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the pain... They have hope, and they can hold on to the hope. And they can know that as they hold on to the hope, God will use that pain to grow them. Now, we may not be suffering from the persecution that that church was suffering, but every single one of us here 
has experienced pain. Some of us in this room right now are experiencing tremendous amounts of pain. And the question is, will you hold on to the hope of the gospel? Or will you give up hope? And what happens when we lose sight, when we start to focus in on the pain and we lose sight of Christ and the hope that we have in Christ, instead of God using that pain to produce joy in our life, God using that pain to mature us in Him, what happens is we become bitter in our pain. When we lose sight of the hope we have in Christ, we become bitter and we become crusty, old, bitter Christians. I think you know the type of Christian I'm talking about. Every single one of us knows a crusty, old, bitter Christian. And it's because they lost sight of the hope in Christ and focused in on the pain that they experienced. And they let the pain bring in bitterness. And so John's writing them to remind them of the hope that they have in Christ. And we want to study this because as we prepare for what looks like could be upcoming persecution and more pain in our life, we want to remind ourselves of the hope that we have in Christ. Because of of Christ, Christians of all people should be holding on to hope. And as we hold on to the hope in the midst of persecution, as we hold on to hope in the midst of pain, God uses that to produce joy and contentment and maturity in our lives. And so that's why we've been studying Hopeful through Revelation. So, uh, we looked at the introduction, and then we started into the first of four visions. And the first of four visions is a letter written to seven different churches. Can we go to the first slide, please? So seven different churches. We first looked at the church in Ephesus, what a lot of people call the loveless church. We've got... Now see, here's my dilemma. You know... uh, This is the route that the letters would have taken. And here's the dilemma, is I want it big enough so you can kind of see the cities, but I also want it, you know, I want you to have enough context to see where everything is. Because Italy and Rome are like over here. And I thought maybe I should shrink that down so you can see that, you know, Israel is over here. So do you guys get that context now? Do you everybody kind of get that? Okay, but now it's, I'm kind of... I did the worst of both worlds, I guess. I either should have zoomed out more or zoomed in more because you can't really see the context, and yet this is really off too. But anyways, so John's writing in Patmos, right? That's his island. It's my island. That's his island. Ephesus is here. That was our first church. Smyrna was here. That was our second church. That was a persecuted church. And now we're at a Pergamum here. So we're going to follow this line all the way down. Maybe next week I'll zoom it in a little bit more. But there's Pergamum right there. That's the letter he's writing to today. So let's turn towards chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon. 
and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. All right, let's dig in. So we've already talked quite a bit about the angel of the church, how this is a messenger, or it could be, there's several different ideas about it, but, but the main point is that this is going to be the, the deliverer of the letter. So the church in Pergamum, we've got to talk a little bit about the, the historical roots of Pergamum. Pergamum was not a port city. If you remember the map, we had the port city of Ephesus being a port city. It was very wealthy. We had the port city of Smyrna being a port city, once again, very wealthy. Pergamum was about 15 miles inland. Now, those of you who live in the, or who are from like the uh, LA surrounding area, 15 miles doesn't seem like a whole lot. In those days, 15 miles was a lot. You had to walk it. And it was 1,300 feet uphill. So uh, it wasn't a port city. It wasn't wealthy because it wasn't a port city. It didn't have a lot of trade. But because of its elevation and because it was so far inland, it was an easily defensible city. So Persia, during the Persian Empire, noticed that it was a defensible, easily defendable city, and they kept the city small because they were afraid of what that city could do. Alexander the Great, as he began to spread his empire, he noticed that strength as well, and he turned it into a strength. And he invested a lot of money to make it a strong military city. Isn't it interesting how one empire could see it as a strength and so they would hold it back? The other empire could see its strength and invest in it? There's no real biblical application there, but it's interesting, just a side note. So, so... Alexander the Great invested in it, and it became this great military city. Well, when the Roman Empire took over, they kept going with what Alexander the Great did, and they continued to invest in it as a military city. It became the capital of Asia Minor. So although Ephesus and Smyrna were both wealthy and powerful cities, Pergamum was the capital. So that's going to play into this letter. So... Uh, it was a capital. We could think of, like, when I, when I talk about these cities, I like to compare them kind of modern-day cities. So a lot of people have compared, like, Corinth to Vegas. You could compare uh, Ephesus to uh, New York. You know, it's not the capital, but it's wealthy and it's very powerful. Uh, you could compare Smyrna to Vatican City a religious hub. You could compare Rome to Washington, D.C., and Pergamum as Boston. What do you think of when you think of Boston, besides the Red Sox? Revolution, T. <laughs> Harvard? Academics? So Pergamum was an academic city. It had a library with over 200,000 volumes, only surpassed at that time by Alexandria. So it was an academic hub. Now, just like Smyrna was a political slash religious hub, 
no, sorry, Smyrna was a religious hub, uh, and the, the politics and the religion went hand in hand. Pergamum was academic and also religious because I don't believe you can separate academics and religion. I know a lot of people think you can. I know a lot of people try to. But the problem is we view everything through a lens. And how we gather data and how we interpret that data will be seen through a lens, whether it is an atheistic lens, whether it's through a religious lens, whether it's through a Christian lens or a Buddhist lens or a Hindu lens. Everything will be seen through our lens. So how we gather the data, how we interpret the data. A great example of this is found just north of us at the Grand Canyon. And I love going on the tour with Adam. If you've never been on a Canyon Ministries tour with Adam, you should go get one. But I love going on that because what he'll do is he'll take you there and say, look, we're, we've got the exact same data. We're, we're looking at the exact same facts as the secular scientists. But we're drawing two very different conclusions. And why is that? Well, it's because we're starting at two different points. If you start from a point where there is no God, then you're going to look at the data, and you're going to have to say, how did this come about? Well, we need a lot of time. And so you're going to start giving lots of time to everything. But if you start from, there is a God, and he created, then you're going to interpret the data another way. So although it was a real, uh, an academic hub, it's also a religious hub because you cannot separate academics and religion. So the religion, uh, the, the most uh, prominent temple of Pergamum was Asclepius, which was, I messed that up, sorry. It was the god of healing. You would recognize the pole with the snake wrapped around it as the medical sign. That came from Asclepius. That was better, a little bit better. Asclepius. Everybody say it with me. Ready? Asclepius. All right. So that was the god of, uh, that, that was the prominent god of Pergamum. So the temple and the area around it became famous for the healing arts. And everyone in the Roman Empire, if, if they wanted to be a medical student, they would send their kids to Pergamum to learn about the healing arts of Asclepius. Along with this temple was the great altar to Zeus, which was 40 feet high, depicting the victory of Attalus, the first over the Galatians, and with a frieze around the base depicting the victory of the Hellenistic gods over the giants of the earth. And this represented the, the uh, victory of civilization over the pagan gods. So here's kind of a contrast, and it's a tension that they were living in, is that they were these religious people, but really their religion was civilization, secularization. So they kind of gave this like face or this lip service to like religion, and that will come in particularly true when it comes to the emperor cult. But what they really put their faith in, what they really thought would change the world, is civilization. They might have been thought of as the first humanitarians, or humanists, I should say. They were thought of the first humanists. They put their faith in humans. If we just put our minds together, and we think about it enough, and we develop certain rules, we can make 
a civilization that there will heal all of the problems. We can become the greatest civilization in society, and we can thrive, and we can flourish, and we don't need any gods. That's what that statue was depicting there. That was the thought in Pergamum. So they emphasized civilization over religion. However, it was not these cults that persecuted Christians. It wasn't the cult of Asclepius. But the same cult we've seen in the first two cities, the imperial cult or the emperor cult, which uh, was worship of the emperor. So Pergamum had a long history with Rome. It had three different temples that were dedicated to the emperor. The first temple was built uh, in 23 BC, that's before Christ. As the capital, Pergamum took the emperor cult seriously. Not necessarily as a religion, though. Now, don't get me wrong. You had to go to the temple annually, and you had to sacrifice, and you had to pledge your allegiance, and you had to worship the emperor. But most of them didn't believe that the emperor was actually God. So for the people of Pergamum, emperor worship was linked to civic loyalty and to patriotism. Thus, refusal to participate in emperor worship was not only godless, but it was subversive. You would be thought of as a traitor to not worship the emperor. So Christians, due to their rejection of the Roman gods, were called atheists, but they were also accused of hatred of the human race. If you're against Rome, if you don't worship the emperor, then you're against civilization and you're against humans. You're a traitor of the worst kind. So because they refused to show political loyalty to the emperor and thus to the Roman people, the Christians were considered traitors, treasonous, and worthy of death. And it is in that backdrop that we study this letter. So he writes, And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, The words of him who has a sharp the sharp two-edged sword. So this is drawn once again from the introduction. And it is, it, we learned in the introduction that this sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth was, represented uh, discernment, that he could split through things that we didn't even know could be split. And yet it was also the symbol of Roman ju- for Rome for judgment. So in Rome, the two-edged sword was a symbol for judgment and justice meaning ultimate justice would come through the sword. So the Pax Romana is the peace of Rome, right? And the peace of Rome has always been touted, but the peace of Rome wasn't really peaceful. They enforced peace through the sword. If you were a traitor, if you betrayed Rome, Rome didn't have prisons. Like, we, we know that Paul was in prison. Rome didn't have prisons for, like, serving out sentences, Rome had prisons as you waited your trial. And then after your trial, you were either released or you were killed. That's what Rome did. They enforced their laws through death. 
So although we think of the peace of Rome, the peace of Rome wasn't exactly peaceful. And they were, uh, so they were emphasizing this justice. So when we look at the sharp two-edged sword, we think of God as both discerning and God, God is a God of justice. Now, in a land, we live in a land with lots of justice, right? Or, or at least we tend to think that we're justice-oriented. So we don't emphasize God's justice a lot. Instead, we emphasize God's love. But think about throughout the majority of human history, and even the majority of Christians living around the world today, where they live in countries that don't emphasize justice. God's justice would bring comfort. When you're suffering injustice, focusing in on God's justice brings comfort. And beyond that, God is a God of justice because he is a God of love. Because he loves us, he cares about justice. So here is a picture of God who is discerning and a God of justice, and it is going to bring comfort to those in Pergamum. So the God of justice writes, or he says, I know where you dwell. So he's going to know two things about him, where they dwell, where Satan's throne is, and yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith. So those are the two things that he knows. He knows where they dwell, and yet even though they dwell in the house or where Satan dwells, they still hold fast to his name. People take Satan's throne and where Satan dwells two different ways typically. One is symbolically, and the other one is literally. I tend, although there is a lot of symbolism in Revelation, I tend to take this more literally than symbolically. And I do it for a couple different reasons. One of the reasons is uh, people talk about, well, it's got to be symbolic. And the reason why it's symbolic is because of all the pagan worship that's going on in Pergamum. And, you know, Pergamum's a capital. And so, so they would make all these uh, analogies here and they'd say it's symbolic. But why I don't think that necessarily holds up is because why wouldn't he say it's Satan's house in all of these other places? Ephesus, Smyrna, all these other places where there's also cult worship going on. He doesn't call those Satan's house, Satan's throne. So I don't think that's a good enough reason. But I also, I think it's more literal because we tend to ascribe to Satan things that should only, or attributes that should only be ascribed to God. So one of those attributes is God's omnipresence. The idea that God can be everywhere at once. God doesn't need to travel from New York to L.A. God can be both in L.A. and New York at the same time. Because God is omnipresent, and because we can't see him right now, and because Satan is a spiritual being, we kind of ascribe the same attributes to Satan. And for some reason, we start to believe that Satan can be everywhere at once. But Satan does not have the power of God. Satan does not have the attributes of God. Therefore, Satan cannot be everywhere at once. If Satan wants to go from New York to L.A., he's got to travel from New York to L.A. He cannot exist in New York and L.A. at the same time. So, with that being said, Satan has to set up shop somewhere. I think this is where Satan has set up shop in that era. Does that mean he's still there? I don't know. 
There's a lot about Satan we don't know. But I think that's what he's getting at, is that Satan has set up shop, and he's dwelling, and he's setting up his throne in Pergamum. That is why I take it literally. So, they live where Satan has set up shop, yet you hold fast my name. This term, hold fast, means to grip, to have a strong grip on. So I think of like rock climbing. You're 300 feet up a cliff. All of a sudden your rope fails. How tight are you clinching onto that rock? You're holding tight. If you've ever watched the uh, Alex Hanold movie about free soloing, he's holding on tight. (laughs) That's what they're doing here. They're living in a place, it's like they're rock climbing, they're 300 feet up, their safety rope has failed, they're holding on tight to the rock that is Christ. So, they're, in, they're where Satan has set up shop, and they're holding fast his name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So Antipas, the, the only mention of him is here. It's not Herod. Uh, this is a different one. And this is the only mention. We don't know a whole lot about this character, other than he was killed for being a faithful witness to Christ. Most theologians believe that he was killed as an example. So the people, the Romans and the Jews of Pergamum, drug him out into the streets and wanted to set an example to put fear, to strike fear into the heart of Christians, so they kill him in a brutal way. But in all honesty, we don't exactly know. I think that's probably a good bet. So they're, but they're holding tight. The point is, they're, they're in a rough spot. They're living in a city where persecution is high. And yet, they're holding on to the name of Christ. They're holding on to the faith. But, so we've got that great compliment, that strength that they have, and then we have their, weak, their weakness. But, I have a few things against you. And as a few, he has two things. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So that's the first thing that he has against them. This is a story that's found in Numbers 22 through 25. And if you're not familiar with the story, I'll give you a brief summary. So the Israelites had come out of Egypt. They're heading up to the promised land. Balak knows that they're heading up. He knows their numbers are too great for his group. He is a king, but he sees them. He knows that they're going to conquer. He also knows that they're blessed by God. He's already heard the stories of the Exodus. He's already heard how God came in and intervened on their behalf. So he knows that this great God is fighting for the Israelites. He knows he's going to die. So he takes Balaam. Balaam was a prophet of God. Prophet simply means mouthpiece. So God would tell Balaam what to say, and Balaam would have to say it. Some people get that confused and think a prophet has some type of control or some type of power. He doesn't have any power. He's got to do what God tells him to do. And we see that when he goes against that, he runs into trouble. So Balaam comes to Balaam, and he says, Hey, I want to hire you to curse these people for me. So Balaam says, I'll pray about it. And he goes back, and he talks with God, and God says no. So Balaam comes back to Balak and he says, God says no, I can't curse him. And Balak says, what if I give you more money? And eventually they come to a place where he gives him more money. He says, okay, I'm sold. 
So he goes out to curse the Israelites. But on his way, his donkey stops him. And he starts to beat his donkey. And finally, his donkey supernaturally speaks to him and essentially says, Hey, look, you idiot. You can't do this. And the, a big point of the story is, if a dumb donkey can get it, surely you can. So, the dumb donkey gets it. The dumb donkey rebukes him. Balaam goes back to Balak and says, I can't do it. God won't let me. But here's what you can do. You're not going to win them in victory. You're not going to go head-to-head against them. You can't conquer them. God will surely defeat you. So instead, throw a party. Send an invitation. Have fun with them. Show them what a good life you have. Show them how much fun you are. Bring them to your temple. Offer them food sacrificed to your idols. Let them taste how good your food is. And then show them your prettiest ladies. Essentially, seduce them. Balak likes the idea, so that's what he does. And in the end, the Israelites begin to compromise. See, God had given them a pretty strict order. Don't Compromise. Don't intermingle with these other cultures because these other cultures are going to influence you and they're not going to come up to where you are. You will go down to where they are. So don't compromise, even in the slightest bit. But there was a pressure. They knew who God was. They just saw the miracles that God had done. And yet, there was something enticing them to compromise. So this is what's happening to the Christians in Pergamum. There are some that are holding to this teaching. And the teaching is compromise. It's okay. You know, we're feeling this persecution. We're getting kicked out of the marketplace. What if we just compromised a little? What if we just looked a little bit like them? What if we quit doing some of that weird stuff that we do, like communion? And we just kind of forgot about that, so that they didn't think that we were cannibals. What if we could just, you know, maybe not sing so many praise songs? Or, or better yet, what if we made our praise songs sound exactly like their songs? That Then we could get along a little bit better. And by the way, you know, uh, temple life is like a central part of our life. So what if we just, you know, we didn't actually have to pledge allegiance to Caesar. I mean, we could, we could do that, but, but we wouldn't really mean it. I mean, most people in Pergamum didn't really mean it anyways. They just saw it as kind of their civic duty. What if we did that? And we could go to the temple, and we could eat these foods that are sacrificed to idols. We could do that and not really mean it. Let's compromise. That's what's going on. That's the problem. So this reference to food that's sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality, both of those were happening in the temple. The temple was a central part of life in those days. Every celebration would be held at the temple. And beyond that, even business deals were, were done at the temple. So if you wanted to be a part of the city, if you wanted to be part of city life, if you wanted to have a business... 
You had to go to the temple. And by the way, while you're there, just eat a little bit of food. It's good food. It's just freshly right out of the oven. Burnt offerings. You can smell it wafting in. It smells so good. And then they might say, you know, that temple prostitute over there, just flirt with her a little bit. You don't, you don't actually have to go through with everything. Just, just flirt with her a little bit so that they know that you're playing the game. Just a little bit. It won't hurt. And what happens is these little compromises here and there within the church begin to dissolve the church. What happened with Israel is little compromises here and there. And they began to look just like the people. So that's what's going on here. It's a strict warning against compromise. The church needs to go into the world. We need to be a light in a dark world. But that doesn't mean that we need to let the world in here. And what I mean by that is, yes, we want non-believers to come in. We want non-believers to come in and hear the gospel. But we don't want to make what happens in here on Sunday morning look like what happens out there. We don't want to play the same games. We don't want to have the same lens through which we view the world. So they were compromising, and that wasn't the only thing. So also, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, there's a little bit of debate about what that teaching is. Some people actually think it's, it, it's reckoning back to Balaam and compromise. We're not entirely sure. The scripture isn't fully clear. But what we do know is that it's false teaching. So we can sum it up with this. It's false teaching. So they had some that were saying, hey, it's okay to compromise. We had others that were trying to twist scripture somehow. Therefore, because there are some that are trying to compromise, because there are others that are twisting scripture, therefore, repent. Now, repenting means to do a 180. Some people think repentance means just to be sorry. But that's not exactly what repentance is. Oftentimes when we're sorry, we're just sorry because we don't like the consequences of our sin. So we sin, and we hurt someone, and we ruin a relationship, and we're sorry about ruining that relationship. But basically what we mean is, I don't like the consequence. You know when your kid gets in trouble? And they get mad, and then they say, I'm sorry. And really what they're sorry about is that they're getting a consequence. That's not repentance. Repentance means that you regret all of your action. You regret not just the consequences, but you regret hurting every single person. All of our sin impacts more than just us. When I sin, it impacts more than just me. When you sin, there are a whole plethora of people around you that that impacts. And so part of repentance is recognizing that your sin is far graver than you ever thought it would be. And then it's turning from the sin. It's not just giving lip service. It's saying, I'm turning from that. I'm going to run from that because I know the consequences are so much worse than I thought they would be. That's repentance. So he's saying, because you're caught up in this, in this compromise and this false teaching, repent, turn from it. And if not, then he gives a warning. If not, if you don't repent, if you don't turn from compromise, 
I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So he's going to war against those who are false teachers. That's the them that this is referencing. It's not that he's going to war against the entire church. It's specifically those who are false teachers. And he's going to war with them with the sword of his mouth, meaning he's going to war with them with perfect discernment and perfect judgment. So this war that he's going to uh, enact will not have any friendly fire. It won't have any civilian casualties. It will be a perfect war that God enacts on those who are false teachers who are trying to get the church to compromise. And essentially what verse 16 is saying is if you don't call these people out, if you don't take these false teachers to task, then I will. And if I come and get involved, it's going to be much worse. Kind of reminds me as a parent when your kids are starting to fight a little bit and you're like, don't make me come up there. Figure it out amongst yourselves. You can do it. Figure out how to get along. But if I come up there, you're losing all the Legos. I'm taking them all away. So figure out how to get along, or I'm going to take the Legos. It's kind of like what he's saying, except for it's not Legos. It's false teaching. So he's saying, hey, confront these guys, or I'm coming to do it. That's what he's saying. He's giving the church encouragement to confront the false teachers, those who are willing to compromise. How this plays out in a church is kind of difficult and needs discernment because the question that I always get when this, a sermon like this goes on is, so should we call out Joel Olstein? Well, I would say Joel Olstein is a false teacher, but that doesn't mean that I need to go to Joel Olstein's church and call him out. Notice here that it's within the local church. He doesn't say, go call out the false teachers in Ephesus. He doesn't say, go call out the false teachers in Philadelphia, Laodicea. No, he says, call out the false teachers within your own church. That's where the congregation, that congregation model really comes in handy is, as a congregation, we are to spur one another along, and when somebody starts to break in with some false teaching saying, hey, we can compromise, as a church, we are to confront them in a loving way. But we're not to stand for the false teaching. Notice also that this is a letter to the church. It's not a letter to the elders of the church. It is a letter to the church. I mean, it is the church's responsibility to call out those who are trying to get the church to compromise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a, a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except for the one who receives it. There's a lot of debate about what's going on with the hidden manna and the white stones. What I think it comes down to is the hidden manna represents or is symbolic for the manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant. The manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant represented the Messiah. So this is uh, messianic uh, symbolism, and what it shows us is Christ is the one who provides. So if you go all the way back to the original manna, it was God providing manna for the, for the, for the Israelites who were wandering around in the wilderness, and the, essentially what he's saying is, you stand strong for me. 
And although you're kicked out of the marketplace, you stand strong for me. Hold fast to my name. Don't compromise. And although you'll be kicked out of the marketplace, Christ will still provide. It reckons true to this day. Stand strong for Christ. Now, I think we need to make a little disclaimer here. That's not necessarily stand strong for your political party. It is stand strong for Christ, and he will provide. And not only will he provide, but I will give him a white stone. A lot of debate about what this white stone is. Uh, White stones were used for quite a few different purposes uh, in that era. But one of the things it was used for was an invitation. So if you were going to throw a party, you could pass out these white stones as an invitation. I think that's what it, what it represents, is this invitation. So not only will God provide for you, and you're kicked out of the celebrations of the temple, but don't worry. God's going to provide an even better celebration. And it's not necessarily going to happen now. It might not happen in our lifetime. But in the end, when all is said and done, God's going to throw a party like you couldn't believe. And you're invited. With a new name, this new name represents an identity. So you will have a new identity that your creator has given you. That no one knows except the one who receives it. The temptation is to compromise. When the world tries to influence, and throughout the history of the church, the world has tried to influence, the world has tried to change the church and make it into what the world wanted it to be. And throughout the history, when the world tries to do this, the temptation is, as a congregation, to give in to the pressure. Even when the pressure is a little bit, like in America. There's a little bit of pressure. It's not like we're going to lose our lives. But there's still that temptation there. But to the one who conquers, Jesus will provide. In the end, Jesus wins. In the end, there is victory in Jesus. Now, you may be sitting here in tremendous pain, and it might not be from persecution. It could be from any number of things. And the way to hold on to hope, in the midst of every type of pain we have, the way to hold on to hope is to remind ourselves that in the end, there will be a victory party. And you're invited. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have provided the victory. You have conquered so that we don't have to. You've already conquered, and all we have to do is trust that you are the victor. You are victorious, and we can hold on to that, and because of that, we have hope. In the midst of pain, in the midst of persecution, we can still have joy because we know that in the end, you are victorious. In your name we pray, amen.